Today we turn again to Romans chapter 8, welcoming those who are visiting with us as we go through this wonderful chapter here to begin the new year. There's an outline on page 4 and then some additional reading for later today on pages 5 and 6 from Kevin DeYoung as well. Romans 8, beginning in verse 12, hear now the word of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of adoption, of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. The Bible teaches us that there is one true triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in three distinct persons, yet inseparable. The Holy Spirit, then, is not an impersonal force, not a ghost, but a person. The same in substance and equal in power and glory with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit functions as the life-giving agent of creation. Remember, children, in the beginning, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. That same Holy Spirit is the life-giving agent of new creation, the principal agent of biblical revelation and illumination and persuasion. The Spirit brings about conviction of sin in our hearts, regeneration, transformation of the hearts of sinners. The Spirit does this by applying the work of Christ to our hearts, uniting us to Christ by which we receive all the benefits of Christ. Romans 8 talks in a wonderful way of the work of the triune God to save and sanctify sinners. And in today's passage in particular, the focus is on the Holy Spirit. This passage encourages us. If you're living in the darkness of sin, it convicts you. If you're struggling With despair, it lifts your heart to Christ. It helps us enjoy the Lord, the fullness of assurance in Christ together as God's family. So we look at the Holy Spirit in our hearts. First, the spirit of sanctification. Thomas Boston was a pastor many years ago, and he wrote, among other things, a very helpful description of the fourfold state of man. That's on page four in your bulletins. He said, the state of innocence refers to Adam before the fall. 
So before the fall, Adam was able not to sin. He had a freedom to enjoy God. He was sinless. He was upright. He was perfect. But he was also able to sin. After the fall, Adam and all of us in Adam enters the state of nature. We are not able not to sin, meaning we are bound to sin. In Christ, the state of grace, at conversion, we are restored. We are able again not to sin, not perfectly, but we are justified yet sinful, and we don't have two natures. Do you see in verse 12 in your Bible that the ESV rightly says the flesh and not the sinful nature? As a Christian, you have one renewed nature that sins, not a sinful nature, not in bondage to total depravity and sin anymore. One day, however, you will enter by grace the state of eternity. You will not be able to sin. Better than what Adam experienced. Our nature will be pure and sinless. Those categories help us as we look at Romans 8. Because we remember there is no condemnation for you in Christ. Christ took your condemnation. You are united to Christ by faith in a covenant of love. And the Holy Spirit helps you to actually obey, enjoy, and please the Lord. You're not in the flesh, Christian. You're not in Adam anymore. Yes, you and I struggle with the sins of the flesh. We have the mind of the Spirit, even as the seeds of every known sin lie in our hearts, indwelling sin. But by God's grace, they don't all grow into oak trees. We are simultaneously justified yet sinful in a war against the world, the sinful world, our indwelling sin, and the devil. And the Bible gives you in this battle many spirit-given motivations for holiness. I printed there for us on page 5 and 6 what Kevin DeYoung lists in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness. It's tremendous what he says in that book, and in particular, Passage after passage. We are reminded there that Jesus is not like the high school athletic trainer who tells everyone to ice it and take a couple of ibuprofen. There are many different medicines the Bible gives us for how we grow in grace. Assurance. Love for the Lord. Gratitude for grace. The character of God. The fullness of joy that we grow in grace, that God might be praised, that we grow in thankfulness and hatred of the foulness of sin, the unspeakable love of Christ. There's many medicines the Lord has given. One of them, in particular, is a reminder that we are not debtors to the flesh. Do you see that in verse 12? Meaning, the flesh is going to tell you Here's some examples. If I don't get my way in this situation, I'm walking out. If I don't get this thing, I can't be happy. If I don't get an apology from that person, I will never talk to them again. You should have it. Indulge. In fact, you must have it. Don't deny yourself. 
It hurts to deny yourself. Live for yourself. Selfish ambition, ego, materialism. If I commit this sin, can I still go to heaven? How can I cut corners and still kind of have life insurance to escape from hell? It's all a lie, Paul says. That's the flesh. That's the indwelling nature of sin that has died, that still lives in us, and that has been the cause of our most bitter miseries when you think of your life and mine. I don't owe the flesh anything, Paul says. I'm in Christ. Don't fall into that lie that says Christians can do nothing about the sin they're in. Because if you do, Paul says, verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's a real warning to the visible covenant community. That if you or I live like an unbeliever, don't be surprised if God treats you as an unbeliever on the day of judgment. But, Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul is a spiritual surgeon. Kids, have you ever had a surgery or you've seen someone recovering from surgery, going through a painful process? It was, I think, 1999. My jaw was wired shut for about six weeks. I went to a wedding that way. Thankfully, not our wedding. (laughs) Can you imagine? I I can't. Your jaw wired shut at your own wedding? No. Not not a good idea. The first meal after my jaw was opened up again was scrambled eggs. I can still taste it. My jaw could hardly move. It was so sore. But those eggs went down easy. Well, Paul is cutting here with the goal of healing. John Owen, in the 1600s, wrote a book based on Romans 8, 12, and 13 called The Mortification of Sin. A series of sermons... Derek Thomas tells us, that were preached to students at Oxford University who were as young as 12 kids and as old as 18. He talks in that book, and Thomas summarizes it, of putting sin to death, the deeds of the body. We are reminded that sin has eyes and hands and feet. The Sermon on the Mount talks about that. That sin is in our thoughts and in our actions. That though the flesh is not our master anymore, it seeks to build a stronghold in your life and in mine, in your fears, in your longings, in your addictions, in your appetites. So Paul says sin needs to be killed at its source, not behavior modification, not, well, I don't do that, but now I'm over here. Not my heart doesn't love this, but my heart loves that sinful thing. It's about a change of heart. Here's an example. Anger. The sin of anger isn't just, okay, I'm angry, but it's realizing I'm angry because I have a strong desire in my heart to control people and to control things around me. And when I don't get what I want, I explode. Heart issue, the root. What sin, loved ones, have we tolerated in our lives that we must die to today? Where have we been filling our heart with a substitute for God? 
Where have we left ourselves exposed to temptation? Jesus says in Luke 21, watch out. I don't want to find you living in careless ease and drunkenness and filled with the worries of life. So how do we die to sin? A person may easier see without eyes, eat a steak with your jaw wired shut, then truly mortify sin without the Spirit. If we try to do this on our own, we will either become completely depressed and despairing, or we will become proud and arrogant. The Holy Spirit, though, works in our hearts as we call upon him to kill sin. That means to kill it at its root. Not just pull the dandelion up by the top of it, but dig down underneath. God changes us. And by the Spirit, we go after this ruthlessly, like a spiritual assassin. John Owen says, with our indwelling sin, by the Spirit, do you know what we need to do with it? He says, we need to strangle it. Put your hands around its neck. When the temptation comes, when it's a thought, kill it. It's either you or the sin. Persistently, he says it's continuous. Kill sin or it will kill you and me. Daily, we need to walk on the bellies of our lusts. Now, we can't keep the birds from flying over our head, a Puritan said, but we can, by the Spirit, keep them from making a nest in our hair. That's an interesting image, isn't it? What do we do with thoughts that come to us? By the Spirit, we say, by the mind of Christ, I will not meditate on that. I want to hate that sin. Left alone, here's what happens if we are not mortifying sin. Our soul is weakened and deprived of vigor, and it's darkened and deprived of comfort and peace, Owen says. So unmortified sin weakens and darkens. And sins have names. That's why we read Colossians 3 today. Where have you gotten bogged down? Where is a sin clogging up the work of God in our life? It is here that we want to ask God by the Spirit, show it to me that this thorniness might be put to death. Maybe it's in my personality. (laughs) Maybe it's in my relationships with someone. Sinclair Ferguson talks of this in a new podcast, Things Unseen. Give the sin a name. If you don't have a clear vision of the target, you're not going to be able to hit it. Confess it. Remember Colossians 3, that we aren't just delivered from sins by saying, God, I've sinned. But we are delivered from them when God, by the grace of Jesus, reminds us that these sins deserve the wrath and the curse of God. We don't want to go on trampling the blood of Christ under our feet. Colossians 3, as it names sins, do you remember what it also does? It reminds us, as Ferguson says, that the worst is the corruption of the best. Do you know where Satan is aiming his arrows in that passage? 
at sexuality and the family. God made us as his image, male and female, for family life. And Satan is coming to destroy that. Personal purity, marriage, relationships with kids and relationships among siblings and relationships in the church. The worst is the corruption of the best. Put to death is in the plural. We belong to each other as the family of God. Sin is never an individual solo enterprise. It always impacts those we live with, those we are in the family of God with. Ephesians 4 says, the way we talk will either glorify God or grieve the Holy Spirit. Our words. A disruption in Christian fellowship among the family of God means a a disruption in our experience of the communion we have with God. They're tied together, loved ones. Mortify. But it's not just that. It's not just scorched earth, Ferguson says. By itself, putting sin to death is not sanctification. By the Spirit... Dying to sin in order that we may be adorned with the graces of God in Christ, that is sanctification. When I itch my hand after it's sweating a lot, when I'm wearing gloves in the winter, it sweats. (laughs) That doesn't help it. In fact, it makes the hand more itchy. So it is with sin. Just trying to get rid of the blemish by itself makes it worse. Like scratching an itch makes it worse. Unless there is the expulsion of sin by the replacement of the fruit of the Spirit, we will fail. It'll be like the whack-a-mole game at the fair. You hit one here, and another one is there, and then another one is up there, and then back here. We write down, Ferguson says, the name of the opposite grace of our sinful blemish. We ask the Holy Spirit to cultivate a new desire. Sinful anger. Father, kill that in me by the Spirit and produce patience. Uncleanness of mind. Purity. Love of this world. Heavenly mindedness. Produce meekness and patience and compassion and kindness and humility. Paul talks of that in Colossians 3. And seek before God these things. Don't just... Forget about them. Ask the Lord to help us. Life comes through death. Isn't that paradoxical? Living for the flesh brings death. Here's an example. Someone who says, I always want to be right. We all struggle with that, right? Because in our hearts, we want to feel superior. A Christian says, I want to be in Christ because being in Christ lays hold of life. The killing of sins, like I've got to always be right, is at the point that we break through to life. Because life comes in Christ, not the correctness of my opinion in boasting over someone else. God has lavished on us everything we need, loved ones, for life and godliness. The lasting transformation by which this happens, is found in Christ. Ferguson says, search the Gospels. Look at the life of Christ there. Look at how 
The opposite grace is manifested in his life. Pray, Lord, by the Spirit, make me more like Christ. Help me to to delight in gathering corporately with your people. Help me to enjoy in Christ the word that by nature I tend to be so bored with. The Holy Spirit in my heart. Secondly, the spirit of adoption. Paul goes on, verse 14. We are led by the Spirit. What does he mean by that? Maybe you have had the unfortunate experience of someone saying to you, the Holy Spirit led me to ask you on a date, so you have to say yes. I hope that's never happened to you. People can take passages and twist them and make them say all sorts of things they don't say. The Bible does say the Holy Spirit leads us, but it's not the intent of Paul here to talk about that leading. Should I be a doctor or a lawyer or where should I live? That, that's true, but that's not this verse. What's this verse? As a consequence of dying to sin, how do I know I'm a child of God? See, that's where he's going. How do I know the Spirit is leading me when sin seems uglier to me and grace more enjoyable? When I'm growing in maturity, that's Paul's goal, that the people of God would be presented mature in Christ. The Spirit of holiness is leading us in Christ's likeness, not into servile fear. Do you see verse 15? Now, in your Bible, commentators point this out, is that a small s, verse 15, the spirit of slavery, or a big s? You see that? Lowercase s, you didn't receive an attitude or disposition that makes you a slave to fear. Or uppercase, Holy Spirit. See the difference? This matters here in this sense. Not so much the Spirit that is within us, but the Holy Spirit is what Paul's talking of here. And there's another word, again, that should be there. You did not receive the spirit of slavery, Holy Spirit, again to fall back into fear. Here's what Ian Hamilton says. Prior to coming to Christ... The Holy Spirit operated in our life like a spirit of bondage. He disturbed our life. He shook us out of worldly, materialistic, self-centered complacency. He convicted us of sin and the judgment to come. To cry out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The Holy Spirit still convicts believers of sin, yeah. But Paul's argument here is, In coming to faith in Christ, the spirit is the spirit of, what does it say, children? Adoption. Don't you love how he brings this comfort in light of what he's just said in verses 12 and 13? The supreme title of the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. As we turn from Malachi to Matthew, From the old covenant to the new, Thomas says, the distinctive feature of the new covenant is that we call God Father. 
Abraham wouldn't have called God Father or Moses. It's a distinctive blessing of the new covenant. We have this intimate, close fellowship with God as our Father. Have you ever noticed, as you talk to people who may be claiming to be generically Christian or not claiming to be Christian, do you notice what they never refer to God as? Father. It's generic. God or the man upstairs or Father. We who are by nature children of wrath have been, by the Spirit of God, given a new nature and regeneration, a new status in adoption, translated from the kingdom of Satan to the family of God, with all the benefits and blessings of being in the family. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to you, that you should be called children of God. Behold, the picture is, this is out of this world. Where did this love of God come from? Not from here, not from this broken world, but from God himself. And it belongs to us in Christ. Dear Christian, you have freedom in prayer now. God is your father, the spirit lives in you. Christ intercedes for you. In adoption, you have the benefit of discipline. What father who loves his children doesn't chasten and correct them? That's what God does for us. He loves you too much to let you persist in sin that damages you and hurts those around you. He disciplines us in love. When you're adopted, you gain a family. Maybe you don't have an earthly family who loves you or maybe you're very lonely today. Here is your spiritual family right around you. Brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers, great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers. What a privilege. The grace of adoption matters because when we live below this privilege, we deny ourselves the riches of assurance that we are children of God. Ian Hamilton asked this question, how do you think of yourself as a Christian today? What's the first thought that comes to mind? Do you know what he says? As a son who is a servant. This is brothers and sisters. That's what Paul's talking about here. Sons and daughters in Christ You are a son or a daughter of the king who is a servant of the king. You know God is your father. Satan wants to destroy that. Satan doesn't want you to enjoy God. Satan wants you to be captivated by slavery. That's why this distinction and difference is so important. Satan wants you to live like an orphan. He wants to destroy your peace, paralyze you with doubts, The gospel, though, reminds us we don't need to do anything to secure God's love for us. It's finished in Christ. We want to pretend and perform, but we are brought to repent and to see again. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. Here's a parable that illustrates this. Do you remember the prodigal son, older son, younger son, both in that parable? 
the younger son, do you remember, children went off and just lived wildly. He was brought to the point of eating the food the pigs ate. He said, I'll go back to my father. I'm not going to be a son anymore. I'll be a slave. And the father welcomes him with love, puts the best robe on him. They enjoy a feast. The younger son was just thinking about his failures, focusing on himself, his performance, inward. God says, here's your status, adopted by grace. My son has bought you with the price of his blood. What about the older son? Remember him? The text says that he lived in the father's home, but he thought of himself as a slave, not a son. He saw his father as a taskmaster. He saw that he had to try to earn the father's favor. It's the Pharisee. It's the lie of Satan to Eve. God is hard. God demands you to do better. If you don't, God is narrow-hearted. The older brother was narrow-hearted. He didn't rejoice in the return of his younger brother. The older brother is self-righteous. I've done everything you required of me. This guy, he's a loser. Loser! The older brother had a complaining spirit. You never gave me, and many think of God like that. You gave him. You gave her. You never gave me. The older brother is demeaning, assassinating the character of the father who in the parable is representing the heavenly father. Christian, you're a son of the father. In our indwelling sin, we revert to living as slaves, as orphans. Some of us are self-doubting, self-critical, perfectionistic, thinking that if I did more then, some of us struggle with insecurity and lacking confidence, feeling discouraged, tearing others down, comparing ourselves constantly with others, trying to fix things. This is coming from page 33 of our Sunday School Study Guide. Those are pictures of the orphan. God, kill that sin in me. The son and the daughter is content in Christ, open to criticism because we're accepted by God in Jesus able to examine by the Spirit our deeper motives, aware that I can't fix this thing. doesn't always have to be right. Prayer is a vital part of the day, communion with God. Christ is more the subject of our conversation because his word is dwelling in our mind and we're thinking about it as we go about our day. Winston Smith talks about this, our phone. He says even our phone can be used in many ways to help us. Connect with each other to help us be reminded, he said, as he turns the flashlight on his phone in the morning, of Christ, the light of the world. Those are just little things. How do we go about our day thinking about the Lord? How do we serve God as a slave or a son? If we think God is indulgent and not holy, we will live carelessly and selfishly. If we think God is harsh, we'll live bitterly and suspiciously. But if we see God as a father who spared not his only son, but gave him for us all, our view of God by the Spirit will change how we live. 
We want to live more thankful, reverent, confident lives. How does that happen? Because the Father loves you. Was the Father's sweetness and love to you purchased by Jesus' blood? Owen asks. He says, be careful how you answer that. The answer is no. It was the sweetness of the Father's love who gave the Son to come and rescue us. So our first notion of the Father is to be one of a Father who's full of free, eternal love to you, kind and tender, holy, yes, just, yes, who has kindness in his thoughts to you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Knowing God as Father means we don't need to hide from God. We don't need to cower in insecurity and fear. Confidence in the love of God means this is how holiness thrives in our lives. We are to be like battleships surging through the waves in Christ, not timid like a cork that's kind of bobbing around, going wherever the wave brings it. We see this in the cry of verse 8, 15. This cry, Abba. Now that Abba, that word, is not the Swedish rock band. <laughs> it's a tender, intimate phrase, reverent. It's a phrase of sweetness and communion. And the cry is not a, like a mumbling cry. It's the cry of blind Bartimaeus. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the cry of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cried, Abba, Father. And dear Christian, you participate in communion with God in a way that was first experienced by the eternal Son of God himself as you trust Christ. This is the result of your sonship that you can cry out. It's a cry of distress. Cry out to God when things are going well, yes. When things are not going well, don't think that God doesn't love you. When life seems to be falling apart, when you're in anguish, when you're in darkness, when life seems like a mess, that's the cry right here. Abba, Father. How can we cry that? Verse 16, because the Spirit is witnessing in your heart. Not giving you extra biblical revelation. But when you cry, Heavenly Father, when you say Jesus is Lord, do you know why you say that, Christian? Because of the witness of the Spirit in your heart. Because the Spirit himself is assuring you that you belong to God. When you open your Bible and you see this is the word of God here. This is not the word of man. I believe, help my unbelief, when you believe the Bible is the word of God, that's the inner testimony of the Spirit in your heart bringing you to believe that the Spirit himself, who inspired this word, this inerrant, infallible word, is living and active in, in you, Christian. The Spirit confirms you're a child of God. In worship, the Spirit tunes your heart to sing praise. Do you struggle with singing sometimes? Maybe wondering what are people thinking, or is my voice out of tune, or... I'm not feeling moved. The Spirit tunes our heart to open our mouth to praise the living God. 
Do we struggle in prayer? The Spirit witnesses to us, reminding us he is here to help melt the mountains of frost and ice that can build up in our hearts. Is your marriage struggling? The Spirit helps renew your marriage. Are you lonely? The Spirit is living in you in the midst of darkness. Do you have a desire for God? If so, the Spirit gave it to you. Do you pray for grace? Spurgeon says, pray for more grace. Do you pray for faith? Pray for assurance. Do you pray for assurance? Pray for full assurance. Do you pray for full assurance? Pray for the enjoyment of God. Do you pray for the enjoyment of God? Pray, Holy Spirit, give to me glory itself. That's where Paul's going. What glory awaits you, children of God? You are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. Of what is Christ heir? All things. The Lord Jesus, who rules and reigns over all, is your king. He's your elder brother. You have what he has. Everything, Ferguson says, he assumed our flesh to accomplish is your inheritance. Justification and adoption. Forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. Assurance and perseverance. A crown of glory. Everything he went back to heaven to claim for himself, he claimed for himself to share it with you, his fellow heir. But, Paul says, remember, your life is one of suffering now. Glory in the age to come. We face unimaginable sufferings, griefs, sickness, sorrow. The Holy Spirit bearing witness in your heart that you're a child of God doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. God has one son without sin, but none without suffering. The fact that you suffer is not a mark that God doesn't love you. Paul says it's a mark of the authenticity of your sonship. When we grasp this, God is your father and you are his child, we see everything with a different lens. What's happening to you now when you suffer is God is treating you as a son and daughter. You and I are going through child training. He's building you up. You have been so united to Jesus by the spirit of adoption that you're one with him in his sufferings and you will be one with him in glory. Thank God this day for the work of the Spirit in our hearts. You are a child of God. God is your Father. Your Savior is your brother. Every Christian is your brother and sister. Heaven, being with the Lord, is your home. Every day is one day nearer. Amen. Let's respond together.